0: I have been
1: king over Israel and Jerusalem, and I applied my heart to seek and to search out by wisdom all that's done under heaven. It is an unhappy business that God has given to the children of man to be busy with. I have seen everything that is done under the sun, and behold, all is vanity and a striving after wind. What is crooked cannot be made straight, and what is lacking cannot be counted. I said in my heart, I have acquired great wisdom, surpassing all who were over Jerusalem before me. And my heart has had great experience of wisdom and knowledge. And I applied my heart to know wisdom and to know madness and folly. I perceive that this also is but a striving after wind. For in much wisdom is much vexation. And he who increases knowledge increases sorrow. We'll skip to 2, 12 through 17. So I turned to consider wisdom and madness and folly, for what can the man do who comes after the king? Only what has already been done. Then I saw that there was more gain in wisdom than in folly, and there was more gain in light than in darkness. The wise person has his eyes in his head, but the fool walks in darkness. And yet I perceived that the same event happens to all of them. Then I said in my heart, what happens to the fool will happen to me also. Why then if I have I been so very wise? And I said in my heart that this also was vanity. For of the wise, as of the fool, there is no enduring remembrance, seeing that in the days to come all will have been long forgotten, how the wise dies just like the fool. So I hated life because what is done under the sun was grievous to me, for all is vanity and a striving after.
0: Father, we ask that you would use your word in a mighty way in this room. We thank you that we have your word in our language. We thank you that we can freely open it and read it and understand it. Father, I pray this morning you would give us understanding. I pray you would give us eyes to see and ears to hear what you would have us see and what you would have us hear. Father, I pray that as we are tempted, even in this room, in these moments, to be distracted from your glory, I pray that you would overcome all of that. I pray that you would empower the preaching of your word. I pray that your spirit would move. And I pray that hearts and lives would be changed for the better may our meeting together this morning be for our good and for your glory and father help us to remember that we're not just here as individuals to hear a message and then apply some of its truths to our individual situations but we come together corporately we have covenanted together as your people and we are growing together in Christ-likeness together. So I pray that corporate aspect would be clear even in this time. Father, have your way this morning. It's in Christ's name we pray, amen. You can be seated. If uh whenever you came in you should have received a copy of some sermon notes on a big piece of paper and then there is a folded booklet that also has some things I want to draw to your, draw your attention to. First there are a couple different places in there. Uh, that you can use this morning. A couple different places where you can take notes. First, there is a guided notes section that has some prompting questions that could help you as you listen to the sermon. And if you want to open to that, if you have a pen or a pencil that you want to use to take down notes, you may want to do that. And then there's also a blank page uh, for sermon notes. I uh, just wanted to draw your your attention to that. I know some of us try to write notes on this piece of paper uh, between all of our notes, and sometimes that can be difficult. So just wanted you to be aware that those are there. And then also for later in the week. There's a devotion in there that's based on this passage, if you want to continue studying it a little bit further. Um, Here at Trace Crossing, well, first of all, if you're you're a guest, you're visiting with us, or you've been visiting, but you have never met me, Um, my name is Matthew Gilbert. I'm an elder here at Trace and one of our uh, staff pastors uh, leading in children's ministry and trying to help parents as they disciple their children. Um, I'm excited to be able to Preach from this book. It's a book. Ecclesiastes is one of those books that we don't read very often. Um, you know, you hear Ecclesiastes three every now and then, but overall, uh, the book is is not really preached very often. And if if you were paying close attention as as Aaron was reading, you kind of see why. I hated life. That's that's not really uh, an encouraging morning devotion. You wake up in the morning, you're really sleepy. The babies are crying. I hated life, and you're know, like yeah <laughs> and resonate with that but Ecclesiastes is one of those books we typically don't preach through but here at Trace Crossing we do not avoid difficult books we do not avoid books that may be uh, difficult to interpret or hard to understand because we believe it is all um, breathed out by God we believe it is all inspired it is all inerrant and it was all written for our good and so I, I am excited to be able to take you through this passage. In Ecclesiastes chapter one, I want to take you back to that right at the very beginning, the first couple verses. In Ecclesiastes one, verses one and two, we see this. The words of the preacher, the son of David, king in Jerusalem. Vanity of vanities, says the preacher, vanity of vanities, all is vanity. And if you can think of the book of Ecclesiastes, verse two is your thesis statement if you can think of it like a college paper it's your thesis statement here's here's what I'm going to be arguing and defending throughout the rest of this paper it is that life is full of vanity all of life is vanity or as Landon talked about last week it's a vapor it's a mere breath it's like smoke it's here one minute it's gone the next or as some translations would say, it's meaningless. Or as the CSB says, futile. All is futile. And so then from that point on, through much of the rest of the book, he's going to defend that statement. And in our passage today, he actually begins a search. He begins a, a journey to try to find What he declares at the beginning is impossible to find. Meaning in life. How can I find meaning in life? How can I find satisfaction? How can I find joy in something that will thrill my soul and give my life purpose? You see, the purpose of Ecclesiastes, it's it's wisdom literature. And this author is doing, you know, what the author of Proverbs does, and some of the psalmists. He's trying to impart wisdom to his readers, but he's doing it in a really unique way. He's trying to impart wisdom by forcing us to see the world as it is. You and I have a tendency to see the world as we would like it to be. We interpret our lives through filters, filters. And none of us like to really open our eyes and see what the world is really like. And the author of Ecclesiastes is saying, if you want to have wisdom, if you want to know how to rightly respond to different circumstances in your life, then you're going to have to see the world, not for how you would like it to be, not for how you wish it was, but for how it actually is. And so as he begins this search, he's going to go through a variety of different paths on his journey toward meaning and satisfaction. And as Landon's going to look at in a few weeks, when we get down to chapter 2, he's going to use pleasure. If you look at chapter 2, verse 1, I said in my heart, come now, I will test you with pleasure. Enjoy yourself But behold, this also was vanity. So he tried to find meaning and satisfaction through pleasure, and he comes up empty. And then even laughter, he says, What use is it in verse 2 of chapter 2? And then in verse 3, he says, I searched with my heart how to cheer my body with wine. So he turns to wine to try to find happiness and meaning and fulfillment, and he comes up empty. He turns to creativity in verse four. I made great works. I built houses and planted vineyards for myself. I made myself gardens and parks and planted in them all kinds of fruit trees. I made myself pools from which to water the forests of growing trees. And then he talks about his power and his success throughout the rest of that little section. And at the end, he concludes, I didn't find it. I couldn't find meaning. I couldn't find purpose. I couldn't find joy in these things. In the end, they were nothing but vanity. They were meaningless. They were futile as a means to fully satisfy my heart. And I think for most of us, we can kind of nod our heads to that. It's like, yep, yep, I see that. You, You can't find ultimate fulfillment in pleasure. Go ahead. Be a hedonist. Try to do everything you can under the sun to make yourself happy, and you'll find that you're the unhappiest person in the world. And it makes sense to us. When you think about alcohol, yeah, go ahead. Go ahead. Try to use alcohol to give your life meaning or make yourself happy. And you'll end up drunk and broke, right? It just it, it makes sense to us. We think about creativity and power and success, and we see the warnings, and we're like, yes, those are pitfalls. But our passage today is a little startling. Maybe a little confusing. Because in verse 12, I, the preacher, have been king over Israel and Jerusalem. In verse 13, and I applied my heart to seek and to search out by wisdom all that is done under heaven. By wisdom the preacher is going to pursue meaning and happiness and on the surface we would think that he would find success that he would come to the end and actually be happier because he was wiser that he would come to the end of his life and find meaning and fulfillment because he was wise but his conclusion is startling He said, It is an unhappy business that God has given to the children of man to be busy with. I have seen everything that is done under the sun, and behold, all is vanity and a striving after wind. Even wisdom, even wisdom left him empty. Now, this this is surprising to us. How can the preacher conclude that wisdom is vanity? Are you prepared to tell your children that? It really doesn't matter whether you're wise or not. I think of the preacher as being the worst college recruiter of all time. You guys remember when you are in high school and the college recruiters, they would come in and they would set up a table to the side and they would have all the banners and the pennants and all their school colors and they would they would convince kids as they're walking through and any of the, the weirdos that would actually stop, I'm sorry, um, that would stop and actually talk to these guys no, um, you're not weird, you're actually, you actually care about your future. I, we were the weird ones who would make fun of the kids who would do that. But you would stop at those, at those places and they would sell their schools and their programs about how wonderful their programs are. Well, the preacher's saying, you can become as wise as you want. And in the end, it doesn't matter. It's vanity. It's vanity. It's like chasing the wind. Have you ever tried to chase the wind? I hope you haven't. That would be hilarious. That, that actually might be an activity we do tonight in TC Kids. All right, kids, let's go outside and chase the wind for a little while. Just kind of wear them down for you guys. But you're never going to catch it, right? You're just going to be running around in circles, and you're going to look crazy. And he's saying, finding meaning and fulfillment and satisfaction and joy and happiness through wisdom is an endless quest. You're gonna be left totally empty. So at the beginning, just just so you're aware of that startling claim, I think we need to make a couple observations. If you turn to your notes, those two observations are in point one. And the first observation we need to make is that wisdom is godly. And and when I say wisdom is godly, what I mean is wisdom is of God. God is truly God. Perfectly, perpetually, infinitely, eternally, and unchangeably wise by nature. God needs no teacher. He needs no school. He knows all things from beginning to end. He is by nature wise. He doesn't derive his wisdom from anything or anyone else he is the ultimate source of all wisdom all wisdom that anyone could ever have flows from him in his wisdom so god himself is wise and secondly another thing we need to observe at the beginning is that god's image bearers receive wisdom as a gift of god's grace in creation so god himself is not only wise but god gives wisdom to his creatures. When God created Adam and Eve, he created them in a specific way, and all of the kids in this room that have gone through TC Kids could tell you how they have, that he created them. He created them male and female in his, what? Yeah, there it is. Image. God created Adam and Eve, he created people in his image. And as his image bears, part of that means that we possess some of his attributes. And wisdom is one of those attributes that we share with God. We can be wise because he created us with the capacity to be wise. And when we are wise, we reflect his character and his glory. We were created for this purpose. So wisdom itself is godly. Wisdom itself is good. I want you to turn to Proverbs chapter 4 for a second. Because not only is wisdom godly and good just by virtue of God by nature being wise and creating us with the capacity to have wisdom, but in the Old Testament we have clear and specific exhortations to pursue wisdom. Proverbs chapter 4, I'm going to look at verses 7 and 8 and then verse 13. Proverbs 4. Get wisdom, and whatever you get, get insight. Prize her highly, and she will exalt you. She will honor you if you embrace her. Keep hold of instruction. Do not let her go, or do not let go. Guard her, for she is your life. And turn quickly to Proverbs chapter 8. These exhortations to, at all costs, get wisdom. If you get anything, get wisdom. Proverbs 8. Verse 34. Blessed is the one who listens to me, watching daily at my gates, waiting beside my doors. For whoever finds me, finds life, and obtains favor from the Lord. But he who fails to find me injures himself. All who hate me love death. This is the personification of wisdom speaking here. And so the Old Testament, there are these clear exhortations to find wisdom, to get wisdom, to hold on to wisdom at all costs. And then we're going to turn to the New Testament. See, the Bible drill folks in here. We're going to turn to Ephesians chapter 5. Because it's not just in the Old Testament that we are exhorted to be wise, but in the New Testament, Christians are expected to be wise. Ephesians five fifteen through 17. Look carefully then how you walk, not as unwise, but as wise, making the best use of the time because the days are evil. Therefore, do not be foolish, but understand what the will of the Lord is. And then back to Ecclesiastes, if you look in Ecclesiastes chapter two, the preacher says as much. In verse 13 of chapter 2, he says, Then I saw that there is more gain in wisdom than in folly, as there is more gain in light than in darkness. The wise person has his eyes in his head, but the fool walks in darkness. And yet I perceived that the same event happens to all of them. So the preacher, in his startling conclusion that wisdom is vanity, is not saying that wisdom is bad or that wisdom is evil or that you shouldn't be wise Wisdom is obviously preferable to folly but wisdom as a means to find ultimate meaning and satisfaction in your life is futile. It can't do it. It can't provide what it promises and so now we're going to just break down this text. We're going to look at it because I believe he gives two reasons to show how vanity or how wisdom is vanity or how wisdom is futile. The first is that wisdom is futile because it fails to fully satisfy our desires. And then secondly, wisdom is futile because it fails to save us from death. So let's look at Ecclesiastes chapter 1 and let's look at verse 13 first. And I applied my heart to seek and to search out by wisdom all that is done under heaven. It is an unhappy business that God has given to the children of man to be busy with. So in verse 12, the preacher, king over Israel and Jerusalem, we haven't really dealt with authorship matters here because... Honestly, it it doesn't matter a ton whether Solomon actually wrote Ecclesiastes or not, but I think it's clear here that the author, whether it's Solomon or whether it's someone after Solomon, I think the purpose is to point your eyes to Solomon because Solomon was one of the wisest people to ever live. Solomon was one of the richest people of his day. Solomon had all power. He had all success, so he is a perfect Case study in the pursuit of meaning and happiness through all of these areas that he's going to list out. And so, whoever this is, if we're thinking of Solomon, whoever this is, the preacher is saying that he applied his heart to seek and to search out by wisdom everything that's done under heaven. So, he is seeking meaning and fulfillment and satisfaction and joy in everything under the sun, and he's applying his wisdom as the avenue to find it. You have a a quote from Augustine there in your notes. Augustine says this, you have made us for yourself. This is in his confessions, his prayer book to the Lord. You have made us for yourself, O Lord, and our hearts are restless until they rest in you. You see, the preacher is not the only one on this journey. Everyone under the sun is on a journey to find happiness. You see it all the time from those in in our world. Do whatever makes you happy. Live your life in such a way that you will be most happy. And if you're happy, no one can say anything to you about it. If you're happy, I don't care what you do. Everyone's pursuing happiness. And then everyone's pursuing meaning. Don't most of us want our lives to count for something? We don't want to just waste our lives in this world. In one way or another, we all... Desire meaning. There's a, a great quote from Francis Schaeffer. I want to share with you. He says, "All men have a deep longing for significance, a longing for meaning. No man, regardless of his theoretical system, is content to look at himself as a finally meaningless machine, which can and will be discarded totally and forever." And then the late Stephen Hawking. This just excellent little short two sentence quote. He says. We are just an advanced breed of monkeys on a minor planet of an average star. i read that again in case you didn't hear it. Stephen Hawking. We are just an advanced breed of monkeys on a minor planet of a very average star. And then listen to his next sentence. But we can understand the universe. So his worldview should conclude that nothing matters because we're nothing but an advanced breed of monkeys on a minor planet of a very average star. And yet, we can understand the universe. We can try to understand the universe. Stephen Hawking found meaning and fulfillment where he looked for it in this search of the universe. We're all on this journey. And so the preacher as he stands before us and he says even wisdom will leave you empty. He he gives us three reasons why. First, wisdom is burdensome. Wisdom will leave you empty. Because wisdom is burdensome. As a means to find meaning and satisfaction in life, wisdom is an endless quest that leaves us wanting and unhappy. He says it in verse 13. I applied my heart to seek out and search by wisdom all that is done under heaven. And then he says, It is an unhappy business that God has given to the children of man to be busy with. I have seen everything that is done under the sun. And behold, all is vanity and a striving after wind. You see, in general in general, wisdom does make us happier than if we were foolish. If you're foolish with your money, you're not gonna be happy when you go online to look at your bank account, okay? If you're wise with your money, you will be happier. If you're wise in your parenting, most days, well, we'll see, most days should be good. They will be much better than if you're foolish in your parenting. If you're wise in your marriage, you probably won't be at divorce court. If you're foolish, you may find yourself there. So in general, wisdom is preferable to folly. Wisdom in general will make you happy. That's what the book of Proverbs is all about but if you're trying to use wisdom if you're trying to gain more knowledge and gain more understanding and gain more insight in your marriage and your parenting and your life as a believer in all these things and you're looking for happiness and satisfaction in wisdom itself you're not going to find it because you can never be wise enough you know I think back to when I was 17 years old, uh, 10 years ago, and decisions that I made that I thought were good and wise decisions, and I'm just like, what an idiot. What, who would think that that was a good idea? But, but I know that decisions that I'm making today that I think are good and wise, when I'm 37, I'm going to look back on and say, why on earth did I do that? Why, why didn't someone just slap me and tell me to stop? And then the same will be true when I'm 47 and when I'm 57 and 67 and however old I am. I, mean, I should just go on and just be prophetic here, right? Like, I'm 97. But you can never accrue enough wisdom to finally be satisfied in your wisdom. It's like chasing after the wind. You, you think you finally got it and then a wind gust, and you have to go this way and you're chasing it this way. Wisdom will leave you empty because you can never have enough of it. And even if you consider yourself to be a wise person, you're going to do some unwise things. It's burdensome to be wise. And so the wiser you become, the more hopeless you feel. And if you re- that's if you really think about your pursuit of Wisdom. You, you'll never find it. I, th- I think of, of a football player like Tom Brady, who has unbelievable drive to be the best. And he's the best quarterback in the NFL. He's the, one of the best quarterbacks ever. And he's talked about on a number of occasions how he just feels like he's wasted it all, how he hasn't accomplished anything. For some reason, he's, he's not happy, he's not satisfied. Because he can never have enough. He can never win enough championships. He can never win enough MVPs. You can never have enough wisdom. And so it's burdensome. And so as a means to satisfy yourself and your desires, it fails. But secondly, wisdom is limited. Look at verse 15. I love this little proverb. What is crooked cannot be made straight. And what is lacking cannot be counted. As a means to find meaning and satisfaction in life, wisdom is powerless to overcome the mysterious providence of God. And here's what that means. Do we have any planners in the room? People who, who really love to, to plan things? And you like, you know, you know my, my grandfather, um, we used to go to Disney World all the time. And he would not only plan the trip, like all the logistical details a year in advance, he would plan every movement of every day a year in advance so that when we got there, there was no diverging from the plan. We are doing exactly what was planned the year before. But if something happened in the course of the trip that kind of threw a wrench in it, he was not a very happy person, okay? Okay. He was. It would frustrate him to no end if something did not happen the way he planned it to be. But it happens all the time with our planning. We can be as wise as we want. When you think about parenting, uh, you know, Tuesday, um, Lord willing, we'll have, add a third boy to the mix. And you have just so many parenting books that tell you how to get your babies to sleep right. And, you know, you have baby wise and you have the baby whisperer and... You know, oh man, we we read all that stuff and we talk to all of you and we ask all of you what what you did with your child and honestly, we hear so many different, it ends up not being very helpful at all because our child doesn't do what your children did, you know, and so all the wisdom that we could apply to parenting cannot stop the mysterious providence of God in colicky babies, right? And to put it on on a larger level, when you just think about humanity, and you hear a lot about human progress. Human progress through human wisdom fails to solve the problems humans create. Every generation has believed that because of our advances scientifically and technologically, and just through evolution, that this generation, we have finally arrived. And all those mistakes of the past, we would never ever make what C.S. Lewis called chronological snobbery. This was a huge deal um, right before World War One. I. I don't know if you guys are familiar with the history of World War One, but in Europe, some 30, 20, 15 years before World War One, all of these adv- the Industrial Revolution had happened. All of these technological advances, all of these scientific advances, all the Enlightenment had happened, and Europe. And his people thought they had arrived. All those barbaric wars—they're far behind us. And in his book, great book by the way, *A Hobbit, A Wardrobe, and A Great War*, Joseph LeConte—he talks about what he calls the myth of progress. And this is what he writes. The early apostles of the myth of progress believed they had overcome the problems of industrial society. More than that, they imagined that they had solved the riddle of human existence. See, this is the same old story. Same thing that the preacher's talking about. They were looking to solve the problems of humanity through their wisdom and through their understanding. And this is a quote from Richard Gamble progress visible in every facet of life and ruling as the governing force behind existence brought order to a world of change and moral purpose to a universe otherwise disturbingly random and meaningless so they believed that they'd found it you know all the things that religion have taught us, all the things that science has to offer, through our wisdom, we can find our purpose in life. Through our wisdom, we can finally find the satisfaction that we've been looking for. And he says, this faith in progress anchored the soul. So this is happening all throughout Europe in the years leading up to World War I. Then it says, A generation later, the leaders of England and the rest of Europe assumed that their science, education, philanthropy, and religion represented the future of Western civilization. Even war would serve to advance the destiny of humanity. And then Roger Osborne said this, Their confident belief in progress and the idea that enlightened self-interest would bring harmony to the whole world was, in retrospect, An illusion. By the end of the 19th century, Britain and Europe were heading not to a better society, but towards the catastrophe of mechanized warfare. Through their wisdom, they thought they had arrived. They thought they were headed to a better day. They thought they had found purpose of life, and meaning, and satisfaction. It was all an illusion. Because you can't stop sinful sinful men from doing sinful things. In all of your wisdom, you cannot stop. And even more than that, in all of your wisdom, you cannot overcome the mysterious providence of God and how he governs his world. Paul writes of the only wise God. And he alone has power to change the world as he sees fit. And sometimes that comes in conflict with our wisdom and our ideas of how the world should be. And 10 times out of 10, God's wisdom supersedes and overcomes ours. So it's limited. Even as I was reading and, and thankful for the efforts and progress in uh, Korea, but as I was listening to North Korean leader Kim Jong-un, something he said, just it reminded me of Ecclesiastes 1. He said, Let's walk together by uniting our minds, efforts, and our wisdoms together to the future where a new era, new dreams, and hopes are waiting. If we're banking the future of our lives and our growth solely on human wisdom, if you are banking on human wisdom to satisfy you and bring your life meaning, you will come at the end of the day to look back on it and say it was all an illusion. It was all an illusion and you will agree with the preacher that it was fleeting. So thirdly, in verses 16 through 18, not only is wisdom burdensome and limited, wisdom is also grieving. Look at verse 16. I said in my heart I have acquired great wisdom surpassing all who were over Jerusalem before me and my heart has had great experience of wisdom and knowledge. And I applied my heart to no wisdom and to no madness and folly. I perceive that this also is but a striving after wind. For in much wisdom is much vexation, and he who increases knowledge increases sorrow. I think that last phrase resonates with a lot of us. He who increases knowledge increases sorrow. The more you know about how the world works, the more grieved you become because the more powerless you feel. See, ignorance is bliss, right? If I, think of, I think of children, parents who are sitting at the dinner table and worrying deeply over their financial situation and their kids playing with blocks in the corner, happy as they can be. They have no idea. But the more you know, the more sorrow you will be filled with. So, as a means to find meaning and satisfaction in life, wisdom creates pain and sorrow otherwise unknown to us. Wisdom is vision into the dark night of a fallen world. The more you learn, the more you understand, the more insight you get, the preacher says. I had all, of, what's he saying in verse 16? I have acquired great wisdom, surpassing all who were over Jerusalem before me. And my heart has had great experience of wisdom and knowledge. And then he says, my sorrows were just increased. I was grieved because of how much I knew. I'd say some of our doctor friends in the room would say, we don't want to know everything that happens in a hospital. We don't want to know. I always think about that about McDonald's, you know? Every time I leave McDonald's, I always just think, what's happening in that kitchen? What's happening? I'm glad I don't know. And then I just still eat the fries on the way home, so. But we don't need to know all the details. Thinking about going in, you know, from McDonald's to um, childbirth. Thinking about going into... You know Tuesday I don't I don't need like Dr. Young I don't need to know I don't need to know everything that happens with with that procedure and just just you know we want the baby to be healthy don't need to know all the details it could be grieving but the more you know the more wise you become the more helpless you'll feel the more powerless you'll feel and the more sorrowful you'll feel And in the end, this is where I want to land here with this point that he's making, that go ahead, try, through wisdom, it's futile to try to satisfy your own desires. In the end, when we forget that wisdom is a gift, we will begin worshiping it as a God. Wisdom is in God, and wisdom is a gift of God to us. And it is meant for our joy. We are supposed to rejoice in the fact that we can be wise and through our wisdom reflect God's glory. But if you're trying to use it to give your life meaning, if you're trying to use it to bring happiness to your life, then you're not receiving it as a gift, and you're not rejoicing in it as a gift. Instead, you're worshiping it as a God, and we do this in two ways. First, we worship wisdom when we trust it to do what only God can do. See, that's what the preacher's really getting at. Now, he won't land there until chapter 12, but he's trying to help us see meaning and satisfaction it only comes in God. It can only be found in God. It's something only He can provide. Wisdom was never meant to produce this for you. And whenever you use wisdom in this way, you will find it to be futile. And that's when we think, I know best rather than you know best. It's really, really difficult for us to come to terms and grips with God's providential wisdom in our lives. Aren't there times in your life when it's really difficult to say, you know best here, Lord? You know best. That's difficult because you think another way is better. Wasn't that the original temptation in the garden when Adam and Eve were tempted? They were tempted to find a better way. God's trying to keep you from something. He's trying to keep you from happiness and you can find a better way. And they believed that lie. And we continue to believe that that lie today. And if you believe that you can find in wisdom what only God can provide, then you will be utterly disappointed. And then secondly, we worship wisdom when we base our lives on it. And I think that's something that is subtle. We think we may not be doing that, but how many of us think that if I could only be wiser, if I could only next time make the better decision in parenting, in marriage, at work, that I would I would finally get there. I would finally be happier with my life. I would, all, I would have the life I always wanted if I could just be a little bit more wise. Well, when we view wisdom in this way, it starts to slowly creep in and take God's place. And we start to worship it and trust in it and hope in it to do what only God can do. Well, secondly, wisdom... Is not just futile because it fails to satisfy. Wisdom is ultimately futile because it fails to save. Look with me in chapter 2, Ecclesiastes 2, verse 12. So I turn to consider wisdom and madness and folly, for what can the man do who comes after the king? Only what has already been done. Then I saw that there is more gain in wisdom than in folly, as there is more gain in light than in darkness. The wise person has his eyes in his head, but the fool walks in darkness. And yet I perceived that the same event happens to all of them. Then I said in my heart, What a question. What happens to the fool will happen to me also. Why then have I been so very wise? And I said in my heart, That this also is vanity. For of the wise, as of the fool, there is no enduring remembrance, seeing that in the days to come all will have been long forgotten how the wise dies just like the fool. Uh, I have a group of friends uh, that I meet with uh, once, once a week, uh, sometimes once a week, sometimes once uh, every other week. But whenever we get together, we usually just read scripture, we talk about life, how things are going. Some of them are pastors, and a couple of them uh, run a funeral homes in Mississippi and in Alabama, and when we were reading this passage uh, this past week, I read this. I read um, verse sixteen: "For of the, of the wise as of the fool, there is no enduring remembrance, seeing that in the days to come all will have been long forgotten." Now I read this: "How the wise dies just like the fool." And one of the funeral owners said, "Amen." He said, "Boy, have I buried some fools and have I buried some wise men?" And And it's true. If you walk through a cemetery, whenever we walk, uh, we we live in the Joyner area. Whenever we walk, we'll walk through the cemetery cemetery sometimes. And, you know, you just think of all the people buried there. Some of them lived really wise lives. They made a lot of really good decisions and choices. They were successful. And others wasted their lives. But they're in the same plot of grass. They're in the same place. This is a sobering thing that the preacher wants us to see. Living wisely won't stop your life from ending in a box under the ground. He says, go ahead. Go ahead. Be as wise as you want. And you should. Wisdom is good. But you're gonna die. And not only are you gonna die, you're gonna die just like the fool does. So then he kind of asks the question, I mean, does it really matter what good does it do if it can't solve my deepest problem because at the end of the day my deepest problem isn't that i'm unhappy my deepest problem is that i'm going to die and we can even add a little more here our deepest problem is that we're going to die and we're going to die in our sin if god doesn't intervene you see, human wisdom can't solve those problems. Human wisdom cannot rescue you from your coming death. You know, Jonathan Edwards used to talk all the time about how he would remind his family often about death. Now, he lived in a, in a different time. Um, you know, child, children, it wasn't uncommon for for children to die or for teenagers to die, and uh, people didn't live that long. But he he would, he would remind his family of death maybe you guys should start doing that just talk about death with your kids It'd be really encouraging dinner table discussions but honestly when's the last time you just said this to yourself i'm going to die i'm going to die and there's nothing you can do to stop it why is this person in the world can't figure out how to escape death Stephen Hawking Billy Graham it didn't matter what their worldview was nothing could stop death from coming and nothing will stop death from coming to you you're going to die I'm going to die so the preacher says If you're basing your life on wisdom, it will do you no good when it comes time to die. If we are left with our limited wisdom to solve the problem of death, we should hate our lives. Look at verse 17, his conclusion to that. The wise dies just like the fool. So I hated life. Because what is done under the sun was grievous to me for all is vanity and a striving after wind. So all of this work to try to find meaning and satisfaction through wisdom came up empty. So he didn't find it. And you're not gonna find it. And then he dies. Just like the fool. And he spent his life trying to be wise. And he still died just like the fool. And so he says, "So I hated my life. And I want to submit to you, we should hate our lives if we can't solve our deepest problem, sin against the holy God and death, which we cannot stop. But praise God, there is good news. Fourth point in your notes, even though wisdom is completely futile to satisfy you, And to save you from sin and death, the wisdom of God in the gospel provides what human wisdom fails to produce. The author of Ecclesiastes is saying, you need to be wise. Look at the world. See it for what it is. If you try to be wise in the world, you're not gonna get what you think you're gonna get. Sure, Proverbs says that in general, your life will go well, but it's also gonna go bad. And... Whether it goes good or bad, you're gonna die. You see, he's getting us to the point where we give up on human wisdom and then we slowly start to get to the place we need to be and that is, what is the beginning of wisdom according to Proverbs? Fear of the Lord. The fear of the Lord. Submitting to his wisdom because in his wisdom, he provides what our wisdom provides always fails to produce although we are blind to the mysteries of god jesus manifests the wisdom of god stephen sharnack puritan theologian says the son opens to us the secrets of god and although we fail to be truly and fully wise jesus never does part of the reason our wisdom fails to satisfy us is because sometimes we're not wise no matter how much wisdom you gain you're going to be foolish but Jesus, in his life, at every single point, he was wise. Every choice was the right choice. Every thought was the right thought. Everything he did and said was holy and true and good. And then although our wisdom can't satisfy or save, the wisdom of God in the gospel can and does. You see, the wisdom of God in the gospel is that God himself took on human flesh. He entered the chaos and the madness of our world and lived as one of us. Yet he was without sin. The wisdom of God in the gospel is that through death, not through killing, not through conquering, but through death, he brings and creates life in us. Jesus died, not only for all of your folly and all of your foolishness, Jesus died to save you from death. And he accomplished this by rising from the dead. He is the firstborn of many who will rise one day from the dead. Death is conquered in Christ alone. The wisdom of God in the gospel is that death brings life. Shame brings honor and glory. The wisdom of God and the gospel is your only hope to find satisfaction and to find salvation. So if you're, if you're in the room this morning and you're basing your life on how wise you can be, or you're trying to give your life meaning through wisdom, I want you to remember something. You're going to die And only Jesus can provide what you're looking for. Only he can. So in one sense, renounce all of your efforts to be wise for wisdom's sake. Instead, submit to the wisdom of God in the gospel and find, finally, what you're looking for in Jesus few application points as binge comes. We all want to be wise. Even the most foolish among us. We want our life to go well. We want to be happy. We know if we make better choices we could be happier. We think about it in our Marriages, we think about it in our parenting, we think about it at work, we think about it in our life together here at Trace Crossing. Let's make better choices as elders. We pray for wisdom every single week. Every time we meet, we want to be wiser so we can make better decisions for the good of this faith family. But if we're resting in our wisdom, going to be grieved we're going to be sorrowful we're going to be hopeless so I want to encourage you to rest not in your wisdom but in God's he knows best it's hard to land there especially when you think you know best but rest in his wisdom trust that he knows what he's doing in your life Secondly, rely on Christ's work, not your own. Wisdom is an endless quest for meaning and satisfaction and salvation. You're never going to come to the end of it. So stop chasing after the wind. And instead, rest in what Jesus has done on your behalf. Thirdly, rejoice in wisdom as a gift of God's grace. James tells us to ask for wisdom and he will be faithful to provide it. Ask for wisdom, but rejoice in it. Rejoice in the fact that you as an image bearer can reflect God's glory by being wise. And then finally, resolve to pursue wisdom as a means to glorify God, not yourself. Pursue it, be wise. Reflect God's glory in your wisdom, but do it as a means to reflect God's wisdom and his glory and not your own. Don't use wisdom as a means to satisfy yourself. It'll fail you. Instead, look for wisdom and the only true source of wisdom which is God himself and rest in what Jesus has done for you on the cross. Let's pray. Father, thank you for being the only wise God. All wisdom emanates from you. You are sovereign over this broken, fallen world. You govern us often in mysterious ways. And you were wise to redeem your people through the blood of your son. Thank you, Father, for rescuing us. Thank you for giving us what we're looking for. Our hearts will not rest until they rest in you. We're looking for satisfaction and sometimes we look for it in our own wisdom. We think if we could just be a little bit wiser, we could be a little bit happier. Father, would you help us to see that our efforts to be wise will always fail to satisfy? We'll always be searching. We'll always be chasing. And then ultimately, help us to be keenly aware of the fact that we're going to die and that no amount of human wisdom can stop it or save us from it. Only you can and you did by sending your son to die and rise. So Father, as resurrection people in this room, may we walk in wisdom May we walk in your truth. May we truly live as you are continuing to conform us to the image of your son. All for your glory. In Christ's name we pray, amen. I want to invite you to stand now and we're going to
1: respond through.